0: For 50% off, visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. You know, I, I love stories that have kids as the protagonists. It's like an invitation to revisit childhood, right? To experience the magic and mysticism and inventive thinking that we embraced as kids. And today's story revisits a childhood memory and weaves it into fantasy. And it's by a writer whom I particularly love, Peter S. Beagle Beagle is an author and screenwriter who's received the Hugo, the Nebula, Locus, and Mythopoeic awards. And you know him as the author of the fantasy novel entitled The Last Unicorn, which is considered a modern classic. Or maybe you've read one of his other novels, or novelettes, or short stories, or pieces of memoir. His new novel, I'm Afraid You've Got Dragons, will be published by Saga Books in the U.S. and by Orion in the U.K., both available in May of 2024. Mr. Beagle recently released two volumes of his collected works called The Essential Peter S. Beagle, and he included today's story in that collection. It's a little adventure loosely grounded in his own time growing up in the Bronx in the 1940s and 50s and includes some of his real-life childhood friends, Phil and Jake. The boys end up taking on a literal manifestation of death. I loved reading this story. And with all Peter S. Beagle stories, it left me with lots to chew on. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So, if you're ready, let's take a deep breath (sighs) and begin. Mr. McCaslin by Peter S. Beagle. On Gun Hill Road, old people die in summer, not winter. At least that was so when I was a boy, in the middle of another century. New York winters could be bad enough. I remember the entire city shutting down for two days one time. But you could bundle up. Turn the radiator on full blast and go to bed. The apartment buildings of my neighborhood, most dating to the 1920s, were thick walled and generally stayed warm, even in a blizzard. You could get by in winter back then. Summer was another matter. Open your windows as wide as you wanted, the stagnant air was almost too hot to breathe. And didn't always cool down after dark. Air conditioners were still new then, and prohibitively expensive. No one in our neighborhood had a unit, so folks made do with electric fans, which were little more help than a handheld one or a folded newspaper. They sat through double and triple features at the movies just for the air conditioning there, when it was working, and soaked bed sheets in cold water be able to sleep. Old people hung out of their windows with their mouths open, gasping like stranded fish, until one day they weren't there anymore. I usually dressed up for two or three funerals every summer. Irish families were rare in our otherwise diverse quartier back then. I only remember two. The Gagans in my building, two floors down, and old Mr. McCaslin, who lived alone in my friend Jake's apartment house across Gun Hill Road, beyond the vacant lot where everyone had planted victory gardens during the war. I knew one of the numerous Gagan sons well enough to be regularly invited for New Year's Eve. And I always went, just to hear Mr. Egan deliver his customary toast at midnight. Well, boys, we're true with one hell of a bad year. And here goes for another just like it. I still keep up the tradition, whether I'm with my own family and friends or in solitude. It brings back more than merely New Year's Eve. Mr. McCaslin was a stubby, white haired man with a narrow red face, a retired subway motorman living on a pension and Social Security. Even though he had lived in that same apartment, a floor below Jake and his family, since before Jake and Phil and I were born, I can't recall his first name. And I'm not sure we ever knew it. It's hard to explain why we three took the personal interest that we did in Mr. McCaslin, as little use as he had for us. He was sour and bad-tempered, given to yelling through his door at kids who made noise in the halls, short, even when he was being polite. If he was drunk, he might even take a swing at you. I don't think he ever intended them to land. It was just another way of saying, ''Get away.'' Get away from me. We never took it seriously. Why and how he became our crabby old man, I can't tell you. Maybe we were reacting to his loneliness or to what we saw or sensed as his loneliness. Children are a cruel, utterly self-centered lot. Innocently heartless. But the three of us were all loners and misfits in our own ways, blessed with imagination, cursed with empathy. We took Mr. McCaslin in, somehow, beyond logic, beyond behavior, whether he wanted us to or not. The summer of 1950 was evilly hot, even for New York. The little gardens along Tryon all withered early, for all the watering their owners did. And I used to imagine that you could hear the trees panting for rain and cool air, just like the old people. The police came by now and again to open the fire hydrants down on Decatur Avenue, but Phil and Jake and I all felt too old this year to play in the water with the little kids. Instead, we talked to our parents into letting us sleep on the roof, or even on our fire escapes, and we shot our allowances on bus rides to the public pool at Tibbetts Brook Park. And we moved very, very slowly. Mr. McCaslin suffered. Apart from the heat itself, we knew that he had some sort of lung ailment contracted in the subway tunnels, and we could hear him wheezing behind his door, and often even when he yelled at us or tried to, for he couldn't always get the words out. Most of the time, his face was redder than ever, the way my Uncle Leon's had gotten before his stroke, but now and then, when he shuffled past us in the hallway, he looked as bloodless as cheese, as gray-white as candle wax. Jake's mother, who worked at a local hospital that had its own health plan, tried to get him to come in for a checkup, "'but he told her he couldn't afford it "'and it wouldn't do any good anyway. "'She was a plain-spoken woman. "'She said, "'You know you won't last out the summer like this.' "'Mr. McCaslin nodded in agreement "'and closed his door. "'In a macabre way that I'm embarrassed to write about, "'her verdict only increased our fascination with him. "'We were kids,' We had all known people who had died, but never anyone actually in the process. Sentence spoken. Date of execution set. So we went out of our way, individually and together, to do things for him. Fruit was big. Someone was sick. You gave them fruit. Everybody knew that. We brought his newspaper up from the lobby. We carried his grocery bags if we saw him struggling with them on the stair. I even sneaked him some of my own rather expensive cough syrup, which made me feel much better during an asthma attack and which got taken off the market a year later. Mr. McCaslin gave me a long look when he read the label, but he took it. And that time, he said thanks. It was kind of us, certainly, but there was more to it than kindness Children have ulterior motives that adults never imagine for a moment. If Mr. McCaslin should open his door to us, often he didn't answer the bell, and we had to leave this or that gift on the mat, didn't we get to peer around him for a moment just to see what a dying person's apartment looked like? I never glimpsed more than a worn sofa, a radio on a three-legged card table, and a few photographs tacked at random on the one wall I could see. It smelled a bit of old man, alone, and a bit more of aging Chinese food. Nothing else. I think we were all vaguely disappointed. But none of us ever said. One August morning, early enough that it should have been still cool, but wasn't, I was sitting on the front stoop of Jake's house, waiting for him to get back from a piano lesson when Mr. McCaslin came out of the front door, started down the steps, and then turned suddenly to look at me. He said in his increasingly hoarse, rasping voice, Where's the others? Never see one of use without the others. He didn't have Mr. Gagan's strong accent. He'd lived in America longer, but his own surfaced now and then on certain words and in certain rhythms. I heard later that he'd been born in County Wicklow, but I've no idea whether that was true or not. I told him where Jake was and that Phil was probably sleeping in. Even then, he often stayed up all night, to his parents' dismay, drawing and sketching. Mr. McCaslin took this in, nodded briefly, grunted, Want to talk to the three of you tonight, and shambled on his way without another word. Now, let's get back to our story. Phil's mother and mine were both nervous about Mr. McCaslin's illness possibly being contagious, but Jake's mother reassured them that if that were so, there would have been a lot more people than us coming down with it over the years he'd lived in the building. So at 9 o'clock that night, after months, even years of peeking into that apartment, the three of us were finally perched solemnly on his couch, which wobbled, at my end, watching as he poured himself a full tumbler of whiskey without apologizing. The living room was sparsely furnished, disappointingly so to a curious child. The centerpiece was a handsome old armchair, the plastic cover on it. For the rest, I remember only a couple of other chairs, a few books on shelves mostly filled with China animal figures. The few photographs close to were mostly of children except for one of a young woman with her dark hair piled and knotted high on her head. Mr. McCaslin took a deep drink from his glass and spoke for the first time then, saying flatly, you saw, no, I'm dying. We didn't say anything. Maybe we nodded. Whatever our response, Mr. McCaslin brushed it aside, saying, I got no time for bullshit. That's one good thing about dying. I don't mind. I'm telling you it's that straight off. It'll be a rest. That's what it'll be, and that's all I want, is a rest. He took a second swallow of the whiskey, coughed, and then went on. <coughs> Ye ain't such bad fellas for little shits. So I'll be asking a favor of yous. One favor. I remember watching Phil studying that hollowed-out red and pale face and thinking, he wants to draw him. He's drawing him in his head right now. Mr. McCaslin said again, One favor. You's got to keep the dog from me. We stared. Phil's family had a cocker spaniel named Dusty, but she only got out of the house when Phil walked her, mornings and evenings. I wanted a dog in the worst way, but I was allergic to practically everything in those days. And asthmatic as well. Jake had fish. Mr. McCaslin said, The Dark terrier." It looks odd in print. Maybe even a bit funny. But it didn't sound like that, the way Mr. McCaslin said the words. He pronounced it like Tarrier. I remember. The Dark Tarrier. Back in Ireland, the dark terrier, he always comes when a McCaslin's dying. He'll be coming tomorrow, day after. Youse boys got to keep him from a door. Jake was the first one to find words. He said hesitantly, You mean if we keep this, the dark terrier away, you won't die? Mr. McCaslin laughed which I couldn't remember ever seeing him do in all the years we'd known him. It was the kind of tearing, ratchety sound, but it was definitely a laugh. (laughs) Boy, oh, nobody keeps the dark tar hero away. You have my word on that. All I want, I just want three days. We were back, staring completely bewildered and increasingly frightened. Anyway, I was. Not by the words so much as by the utterly serious tone of Mr. McCaslin's rough, painful voice. I got to write a letter, he said. Before I go with them, it'll take me three days. I'll be ready in three days. Who's it, too? Neither Jake nor I would have dared to ask, but Phil always had to know. Mr. McCaslin didn't take any offense at the question. He hardly seemed to have heard it. He said almost dreamily, It's to my girl, my daughter. There's things to set right, things we didn't understand. Neither honest." His voice trailed off, and he was silent for a few moments before he added, Name's Daisy. My wife named her. The notion that Mr. McCaslin had once had a wife, let alone a daughter named Daisy, was as strange and disconcerting to us as any doomful tale he might have told. It was easier, then, somehow for me to ask about the Dark Terrier. Did his coming always mean death and... Only for a McCaslin? It seemed an important question if we were going to be getting in the thing's way. Mr. McCaslin didn't brush it off. I never heard of him coming for none but the McCaslins. It's three hundred years and more we've passed that story down all the way back to bloody Cromwell's time. Own father. He saw his father go off with a dark tarrier. He told me so himself. Always warn me. Have your house in order, boyo. For the dog won't never wait. And I done that. I done that except for the one thing. His faded, almost colorless eyes were glittering with tears. I got to write to Daisy. It'll take you three days to write a letter. Oh, please, God, that wasn't me. Yes, it was and with Phil and Jake looking at me. But Mr. McCaslin only said with some dignity, I got a lot to say to her, boy, and no practice in saying it. I didn't ask any more questions after that. Neither did any of us, really. I don't think we ever formally agree to hold the Dark Terrier at bay for three days either to Mr. McCaslin or to each other. But when we left that apartment, we knew it was a done deal, as people say now. We didn't talk much afterward, except to decide that we'd watch in shifts with Jake taking the first, me the second, and Phil the long third, since he hardly slept anyway. Then we went home and had bad dreams, all of us. I know this. Because I checked. As edgy and keyed up as we were, not in the least sure what to believe or what we'd actually do if the story turned out to be true, how do you plan to waylay a phantom dog? It's a good thing that the Dark Terrier appeared on only the second day after our meeting with Mr. McCaslin. It happened on my shift, around noon. I was sitting cross-legged on the floor a few doors down from the apartment, working in my special secret poetry notebook. People were used to seeing me like that when I heard the soft clicking of blunt claws on slate tile and looked up to see the black head come around the stairwell. I dropped the notebook and scrambled to my feet, and we regarded each other, the Dark Terrier and I. It wasn't ghostly or transparent, nor at all menacing, and it wasn't exactly black, either. Dark really is the best word, for it seemed to be made of darkness. Darkness as far beyond black as the darkness of space must be from our simple night. Otherwise, it was an ordinary-looking, smallish dog, something like a fox terrier— I knew all about dog breeds back then. With a mild-mannered style and an endearing way of carrying one ear up and the other down. He considered me amiably enough, plainly dismissed me, and started directly for Mr. McCaslin's door. No, I said. Oh, no. And I beat it to the door and scooped it up before I had time to be scared of being bitten. Then I ran down the stairs, still saying, No, 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 completely forgetting my poetry notebook, and I ran almost all the way home across the sweltering street, carrying the dark terrier tightly in my arms. It didn't struggle at all, nor growl, nor ever once try to bite me, but only put its head back and looked at me in a rather puzzled sort of way, as though this were the last thing in the world it had expected— which it probably was. When I slowed down, breathless and sweating, I panted to it, We have to keep you for three days. Mr. McCaslin isn't ready. He, he has to finish his letter. It's very important. He'll go with you in three days when it's done. Unlike a real dog, the dark terrier felt achingly cold against my chest, I couldn't feel any heartbeat. It hurt me to hold him. My parents were at a teacher's union meeting. I've never been more grateful for anything in my life than I was for that as I ran into our apartment, slamming and locking the door behind me. I put the dark terrier down and went from room to room, closing and locking every window, even though we lived on the fifth floor despite the fact that I was cutting off what little flow of air there was. The Dark Terrier followed me, still with the same slightly bewildered air, not trying to escape, watching me intently as I phoned Phil and gasped out the story. Nearly six decades later, I still remember that the first thing he asked was, ''You okay?'' ''Yeah,'' I said slowly not having considered allergies or asthma until then. Yeah, I don't think it's like a regular dog. But they'll never let me keep it, not even for three days. I know they won't. Mm, I might just get away with it, Phil pondered. Might. Tell my folks I'm keeping it for a friend. It'll be a playmate for Dusty. Give me a couple of hours. I'll call you back. I called Jake after that, and he came over immediately, easing cautiously around the door while I blocked the hallway to keep the Dark Terrier from making a break for it. He'd already told Mr. McCaslin that we had the dog, and the old man had thanked him feverishly and hurried back to continue writing to his daughter. Anyway, I hope that's what he was doing, Jake said. He smelled pretty strong. We regarded the dark terrier together, and it looked back at us with calm impatience, if there is such a thing. Jake said thoughtfully, Ordinary sort of dog. Come right down to it. You think it's really the angel of death? I shook my head. If it's an angel, it could just waltz right out of here and right through Mr. McCaslin's door, and that'd be that. I think it's just something they've got over in Ireland. Maybe it doesn't have the same powers here. I don't know, but it sure knew where he lived. Just like he said. It's the McCaslin family dog, all right. Three days, Jake said to it. You can wait three lousy days, can't you? The dark terrier gave no sign of hearing, comprehending, or complying. Phil called in an hour to say that he had talked his parents into letting him babysit his friend's sweet little black dog for the couple of days the friend would be away. Jake and I promptly brought the dark terrier over, still unresisting, sleekly muscular and shockingly cold in our arms, and so clearly waiting, just biding its time, that Phil said, I wish they made dog handcuffs, dog hobbles, dog shackles, dog ball and chain things. We're never going to hold this one for three days. But we did manage it for two. Two and a half, really. Phil's mother was a well-meaning, anxious woman. A deal more nervous than Jake's mother or mine. Surprisingly, she took to the strange black dog, as did Dusty, the old cocker spaniel, which was even more surprising, and spent time petting it and playing with it, even assuring Phil that he didn't have to be watching it absolutely every minute. He could leave, sweetie, as she was calling the Dark Terrier, with her and just go back to his room to draw or paint for a while. Phil held out until the morning of the third day, Then he yielded, leaving her with instructions and warnings enough for the Keeper of King Kong. His mother, rather uncharacteristically, obeyed every one of them. It didn't help. The moment Phil's mother opened the door for the plumber who had come to install the new kitchen sink, the dark terrier shot between her legs and was gone, leaving hysteria in its wake and Phil on the phone to Jake and me, telling us to get over to Mr. McCaslin's and keep that dog away from his door. He'd be right there as soon as he'd finished yelling at his mother. I could hear his father rumbling in the background and thought, it might be a little longer than that. For all that Jake lived in the same house and knew exactly where the Dark Terrier was bound, It was at Mr. McCaslin's door before Jake could get there to head it off. It was on its hind legs, scratching at the door like any family dog wanting in, and Jake could hear Mr. McCaslin inside crying, not yet, not yet, I I ain't finished, please, not yet. But the dog would not wait. When jake tried to prod the dark terrier away from the door it turned on him and growled for the first time showing only its front teeth which he said was scarier than if it had bared every fang in his head he retreated and stood by helplessly until phil and i got there then between the three of us we did manage to make the dog back off at least a little way Where it sat on its haunches, still growling in its chest, while we lined up before the door, linking arms theatrically and chanting, No Pissarin! They shall not pass, like Jake's Uncle Irv, who had been in the Spanish Civil War and had a blind eye to show for it. I wondered if any McCaslins had died during that one, and if the Dark Terrier had come for them too, trotting briskly between the lines. Now, let's get back to our story. We stayed there well into the afternoon, facing down a thing none of us truly understood, hoping that we were really buying time for Mr. McCaslin to finish his last letter to his daughter Daisy. We were hot and weary, Emotionally weary as much as physically so. And when I think back on that last day now, I'm amazed at how three 11-year-olds held together. Even three very bright 11-year-olds. Even knowing whatever it was we maybe knew. I remember Jake saying, We're never going to be able to talk about this to anybody. And Phil answering, I don't ever want to talk about it to us. For myself, I kept wishing I'd brought a book. When the door behind us opened, it opened suddenly, catching us all, and maybe the Dark Terrier too, by surprise. Mr. McCaslin stood there, looking not exactly taller in the ragged green bathrobe he must have been living in for days, but somehow straighter, lighter as though a great old weight on him had turned to wings. He did not look at us, but said simply to the dark terrier, I'm done now. Come in, if you will. The dog that had come for every McCaslin for three centuries paced past him into the apartment after a last long stare at each one of us. Its eyes were as unearthly dark as the beast itself and completely expressionless. But it seemed to see us and know us as no one ever had. Mr. McCaslin said to us, I thank you, old tree. Don't forget to mail my letter to Daisy. I put stamps on it. Then he turned and followed the dark terrier into his apartment and closed the door. Jake nipped in and grabbed the letter when the paramedics came for the body the next day. Mr. McCaslin had died in bed with an untouched bottle and glass on a chair nearby. There was no sign or any trace of a dog ever having been there. The letter was fat and heavy, addressed in a surprisingly neat hand to Daisy McCaslin at a box number in Toronto. We stuck on a few extra stamps just in case and dropped it in the mailbox at the corner of Gun Hill and Wayne. I like to think she received it. But of course... I don't know. We never did talk much about Mr. McCaslin. Not then. The questions the whole episode raised were simply too much for 11-year-olds to deal with. Where had he gone with the Dark Terrier? And did its existence imply the reality of an afterlife? Could there be other such creatures, phantoms, apparitions, spirits... And did they only attach themselves to certain families, certain sorts of people? Could they be considered evil or benign, finally? We could neither find nor invent answers to any of these. So whatever we thought as individuals, as a group, we just let it all go. These days, though, All of us being older than Mr. McCaslin probably was at that time, we do discuss it now and again from our three corners of the continent. Jake and Phil both swear that they've actually seen it, turning a street corner just ahead, pattering down the front steps of some old building late at night. I can't say that, but I sometimes thought I've heard its claws clicking behind me even though it's never yet shown itself. But all three of us I know still see it in our minds standing up and scratching at Mr. McCaslin's door to be let in at last. And when that vision comes back to me I hurry home to write my own letters to make my own amends to get done that which no one else can ever do for me before I hear the clause at my own door. for me a a real fascination with uh, the world of the supernatural. I remember after Twilight Zone, Rod Serling used to have a show in the 70s called Night Gallery. And at St. Pius, uh, where I was going to school, um, it was a boarding school, it was a Catholic seminary for for high school boys. We used to um, permission, special dispensation, I think it was on either Wednesday or Thursday nights to stay up in the lounge to watch Night Gallery. And it it had a lot of episodes that dealt with the supernatural. And so the idea of this, this dog that is dedicated across time to one particular family is just such a rich idea to me you know it's one of the many reasons i i i love this story and peter s beagle himself as a writer i've i've always found his stories not just engaging but really meaningful to me on uh, on many levels and this story is certainly no exception i mean the the idea of the sighting of this dog, this whatever it is, this force that has a singular and specific purpose to escort you from this life. Pretty rich, I think. And the idea that Mr. McCaslin was okay with it, I really marveled at at the character's ability to reconcile his fate the last thing he feels like he needs to do before he goes. When he says to the kid, you know, I have a lot to say, but not much practice in how to say it, boy, does that resonate with me. It's funny because, you know, the, <laughs> I, am, I am becoming acutely aware of um, this season in my life. I I think it's admirable to put one's affairs in order, consciously. It's important, I think, for the sake of those that we love, to handle our business before we go. You know, the idea of the letter that Mr. McCaslin wrote, that one thing that he felt like he needed to accomplish before he went willingly with the Dark Terrier, that's all of us. We all have unfinished, unspoken, undone deeds that it would probably be best for the peace of our soul if we just got it done, lightening the load, both for your own sake as well as those that we leave behind. My thanks to Peter S. Beagle for allowing me to read his story today. You can find it in The Essential, Peter S. Beagle, out now from Subterranean Press. And you can pre-order his new novel right now called I'm Afraid You've Got Dragons. If you didn't already know the Beaglemeister, now you do. Go forth and enjoy. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Smith, the best in the business, y'all. Our fabulous researcher is L.D. Lewis. Always happy to have you aboard, my sister. Editing and sound design, courtesy of the fantastic skills of Mr. Casey Holford. Thanks to Talon Stradley for his invaluable production support. Our original theme and credits music is by our own Brendan Burns. If you like the podcast... One of the best things you can do to support it is to tell a friend. Just pick an episode and send them the link. Share the short fiction wealth. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher and LeVar Burton Entertainment. Our executive producers are Josephine Martorana and yours truly, LeVar Burton. And if you want to find me on the internet, I'm LeVar.Burton on Instagram, at LeVarBurton Burton on Twitter, or the LeVarBurton Burton on TikTok. You can also go to LeVarBurton.com. And hey, if you want to join my book club, go to fable.co slash LeVar. We're reading together, y'all. Come join us. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it.
2: Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador.
1: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life.